0: Women Making Waves.
1: Not that I do this every year. In fact, I don't remember the last time I did this, but I am actually clearing up the house.
2: Your house is always pretty clear, though, isn't it? I mean, it always looks very Mm -hmm. presentable, your house. Well, you're very kind, Linda, but
1: no, no. I, I suppose because it's our house, I know where things are. So when people come round... I'm sure this is what happens with most people that I put things that I don't want to see in the house that are a bit under, I put them in Mm -hmm, cupboards. mm -hmm. So when you have, you must know this, so when you have people around for dinner or just in the day for lunch and you think, oh gosh, that room, you know, Mm. when you just stuffed everything in. And I think for my own benefit, I like to put it away so that the house is tidy.
2: Do you not feel like that sometimes? Uh, well, yes, but then you end up with a load of stuff in cupboards. In yeah. the back of my mind, that starts to irritate me as well. All these things that you've got yes. in cupboards, because that's not tidy either, is it?
1: But anyway, that's what I've been doing. Most of our children are left home now and they've all got their own places. But I've had to get them back to the house because they've left stuff in the cupboards and I've made them come back for a weekend to sort it out. That was really satisfying, but it was also, very stressful because they didn't want to come back and sort it so the young don't want to sort out i want them to start with
2: a fresh start well, they'll have and to and do it at some point see. won't they yeah exactly <laughs> this reminds me actually there was a book that came out a few years ago by margaretta magnuson it was the gentle art of swedish death cleaning mm. which is i think what you're doing at the moment actually yeah but
1: i you told me about this and i really don't like the title death cleaning I just have death a cleaning yeah no stop it I don't like hearing <laughs> that word the death cleaning I know what you mean and I know where that woman is coming from I absolutely mm-hmm. because I had an epiphany about it that I didn't want to leave any of our children with that utter mess but I'm not doing it for death cleaning. I'm doing it for my own satisfaction is that not the same I suppose
2: mm, I think you are really so this book anyway the full title is The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning how to make your loved ones' lives easier and your life more pleasant. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: So I'll go with the last bit.
2: And this is all about these cupboards. Because yeah. she says, Who do you think will take care of all that when you're no longer here? And this is apparently aimed at people at the end of middle age. <laughs> yeah. or okay. Sooner or sooner, CZ, or yeah. sooner okay. Um well Or, said, or later. Yeah. If you're late to the late to the game. So you get rid of all the stuff you've accumulated that you don't need anymore. Nobody else has to do it when you're you know gone. When you're gone, I know. But anyway, that it has been really, really therapeutic, I
1: have to say. Mm-hmm. So it's a big declutter, really. It's a isn't big it? declutter, of course it is. Because we renovated the house and then we we then put everything back
2: in in the cup the- of course yeah yeah dusted it down put it back and in is that the same yeah. for you Linda or do you just find <laughs> that you are ultimately tidy oh there's some things I really struggle to get rid of and I know I don't need them what was it we were saying the other evening we, we were out for dinner and someone said if you pick up something and the object doesn't fill you with joy then you should get rid of it That's
1: absolutely right. You've got to take something and hold it in your hand. And does it give you joy and Mm -hmm. sparkle, wasn't it? Does it fill you with sparkle? Oh, yes, joy and and sparkle. sparkle. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. One to remember, Linda. And on that note, Mm. hearing from Lucy
2: Broadbent about Ted Lasso, what do you think Ted Lasso would have done? I think he would chuck the lot. Or you get someone else to do yeah. it for him. I notice in that programme, he didn't do very much himself. He got everyone else inspired around <laughs> him to do all the doing. So we're going to be speaking to Lucy Broadbent, um, who's written a book called What Would Ted Lasso Do? Ted Lasso, of course, the television programme, which has been... Massive, massive hit, everybody talking about it. And we've both watched it, haven't we? And it's absolutely brilliant. Who's our other guest then, Susie? Well, the wonderful Katie Searle, who
1: was up until recently the senior controller of the BBC News very interesting lady very fascinating what she had to say was quite interesting she, she has
2: did. gone on to do other things now she has and i think one of the really interesting things about katie and uh, she she'll be telling us about this is how she got to where she got to and i think it should inspire absolutely everybody when she uh, when she talks about her background absolutely fabulous
0: You're listening to Women Making Waves, radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things.
1: Our guest today is former BBC News senior controller and executive editor of BBC Politics, Katie Searle. Katie has recently become partner of the communications and public affairs consultancy, Told. Katie joined the BBC in 1990. Now, we've got to admit to you, Katie, that while researching you before today, it's come to our attention... That you're one of those women who's probably ticked or kicked many, many goals into touch in your career. Uh, Kate's impressive roles at the BBC include three years as deputy editor of BBC News at 6 and 10 worked on today the world tonight and on world service output as well now before that katie was head of bbc westminster and before that again her career has covered a remarkable job journey from producer researcher assistant editor of the today program to recent years' senior controller programmes and commissioning, to name but a few. And of course, is Senior Controller, BBC News. Welcome, Katie. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Recently, I met you at the International Women's Day Breakfast Seminar, and the title for this event was Women and Risk-Taking. Now, at the beginning of the audience, I don't know if you remember this, Katie, but the audience were asked to stand up if they had taken risks. And I cannot remember if the panellists, which was you, of course, and the speakers, were obliged to do that. I cannot remember if we did that. I was so interested that they'd asked the audience before actually listening to the panellists that... I, anyway, I stood up because I, I think I do take risks. But I want to know, Katie, are you a risk taker?
0: Um, I think I would say yes to that. I think really it depends, you know, de- lots of words have done lots of definitions. And so I think if you ask my friends if there was a cliff in front of me, would I jump off it? I think I would jump off it. I'm always really looking for the next opportunity. And, you know, so to go back to the definition of risks, it's not always about jumping off a cliff, but it is about pushing yourself forward. And I think that's my definition of risk-taking, is not sitting back and thinking, okay, this will do because of whatever reason you want to sit back. And that can be a range of things. It can be a lack of self-confidence. It can be being too frightened to speak out. It can be a fear of failure. And I think that day, actually, Susie, we talked quite a lot, or I talked quite a lot, about a fear of failure. Mm. And I think that is a really important phrase around risk-taking and what you're going to do with that risk-taking and your total fear of failure. And I think particularly... It's a, my experience anyway, is that that's a particular thing for women as well.
2: Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking when when you said that, actually, Katie. I think women are far more timid about making, making a fool of themselves, I suppose, um, stepping up
0: and maybe looking silly. And I think it's, it's such a shame. Well, for me, I think I definitely got bolder in my 30s. So I wouldn't want to give the impression that I ran into the BBC thinking, you know, age 19, that I knew everything. It was completely the opposite. You know, when I started there, I'd, I'd got there because I'd applied and applied and applied. And at that time, they had it was essentially a secretarial pool and you could you could go in and pass a typing test. And because I'd been rubbish at French A level, I was chucked off French A level and I was made to do typing at my college. <laughs> And I used to spend most of the time smoking in the smoking hut and not very much time <laughs> typing. Um, but luckily, I did enough typing to pass the BBC test by one mark. I remember it so clearly. I got 101 points and the pass mark was 100. And um, I really wasn't very good at typing, but I just about got the touch typing nailed. And and so lucky for me, I was you know introduced to the BBC and I was... Uh, I had to go in for an interview and I was given a job as a, um, I thought, grandly titled radio production assistant, which was basically a sectarial kind of typing up contracts. But for me, it was the most exciting thing. And at that time, I was I was terribly frightened about it. You know, the BBC was, you know, the absolute sun in my life. You know, that was where I was going to get to one day. And to get there at 19 was completely not my expectation at all. (laughs) And I went in and literally, apart from the other production assistants, literally everyone I met had been either at Cambridge or Oxford. And they're lovely people and lots of them are, you know, very, very good friends of mine, terrific people. But had a very different background to mine. So I was very fearful going in and it was only really in later life that I managed to take on the fear of failure.
1: When you say you were very fearful, obviously you were fearful, but it didn't put you off having a go. So when you say you didn't go to university, does, am I writing saying you didn't go to university? I remember you saying at the, the talk that you, you skipped university, that wasn't for you. Sometimes I always think when you go to university, it's, a, it's a, a level of confidence, isn't it? It's putting you up. But for you and many, many women, university was not for them and you had that fear but you still moved forward so what what's behind that what's behind this oh I'm stepping out of my comfort zone have you always been like that
0: I don't really know I think probably if you spoke to my sister she would say I was always like that and I think she always says you're the most determined person I know and I think that's (laughs) probably that word is is quite a good word for me and I was really weird actually when I was little or kind of in my early teenage years and again if you spoke to friends of mine um, who knew me at the time then, they were slightly baffled because at age 13 I was doing voluntary shifts at Kingston Hospital Radio in Surrey, <laughs> um, going round to all the sick patients, poor things, and asking them for requests on our station and then going back and doing all the work there And um, on a Tuesday evening my dad used to drop me at the hospital and pick me up a couple of hours later. So that was 13. And at 16, I was working, again, just voluntarily at London's Capital Radio, which I thought was just the most cool station on earth. Mm -hmm. And by chance, I lived in Isha in Surrey at the time. And so did two of the biggest DJs, Kid Jensen. You'll probably remember he was a very big name um, back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. and, And a DJ called Mick Brown. And they used to get the same train as me. And so I got to know them. They were so nice. And I used to go up every morning and say, hello. And um, we used to have a little chat and then I got off and they went off on to off onto London. And so, I, you know, I was doing work experience there and then I was just determined, really. I just thought I don't want a boring job. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote to every station. And I've still got literally a box full in my loft of rejection letters. But the one <laughs> positive letter that came back was the typing pool. So thank God I was rubbish at French, really, because uh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that caught me and I didn't smoke too much. Uh, you know, that got me started. <laughs> so, yes, and I think once you're in there, you know, I think being also being surrounded by people who had a much kind of more deep and comprehensive education than me, I kind of felt like I didn't want to be beat you know, and Susie, I can't remember if I told the story when we met, but there was a particular moment. I'd been at the World Service two or three years where I started, and I kept going for promotions and I kept being beaten, and I was getting terribly down about it. And the boss I had at the time said to me, Oh, I think you should leave the BBC and go and study Sino Soviet relations. <laughs> and I thought it was like the weirdest <laughs> thing ever, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know anything about the <laughs> Soviet Union as it was then. Or China, and or let alone their relationship. And um, I thought, that's absolutely not for me. I'm not giving up this job, which I absolutely love. I'm just going to keep going. And I found ways around it. And I did once I'd got kind of on the next part of the ladder. The promotions kept coming, which was terrific. And I, But I don't also, I don't want to, you know, give the impression that it was a breeze. It absolutely was not. And I think one of the things I always say to people that ask me about how to get on in in my particular industry is that I think you've really got to love what you do and I think that's true of any industry and so reading about the news or current affairs or you know later in in life for me politics didn't feel in any sense like going to work it was just something that I was really fascinated in and broadcasting I just thought was like really cool because it was you know When I was younger it was about pop music and when I was older it was about news you know and and so that real interest and deep commitment to doing something that you genuinely feel really excited about I think just gives you a huge advantage Mm -hmm. you know so I was was talking to my son this morning he's 16 and struggling through his GCSEs and whatever you decide to do just make sure you're interested in it you know because otherwise you're like well who wants to get out of bed and do something that they can't stand you know both of you are two broadcasters and you'll understand that passion for it. You know, when people say, you know, what would you tell your 16 year old self? Yeah, I would just yeah, I just I've been thinking about that recently. And I just think it's always to just don't doubt yourself and also realise that other people that you're with are kind of broadly the same. Mm, you know yes. don 't you think you know that, yeah. you, that you realize that you 've kind of terrified that someone else is more clever than you, and then you have a conversation, and they might be you know clever in you in all sorts of ways, but then there might be other things that you 're good at you know, yeah. and you just end up having a yeah. conversation and just say oh okay well you 're just the same as me we 're just all people yeah. and and once you realize that that 's okay mm. and and then you 're not frightened and you 're not frightened of saying what you don 't believe you know so when I went to Westminster, for example, when I was um, about 10 years ago when i started at bbc westminster i knew you know little bits about politics i didn't know a huge amount and and i actually just wore that as slightly as a badge of pride because i think you know there is a real need for clarity in our broadcasting and our storytelling and i'd say to the team there sometimes they were broadcasting to themselves too much you know with that kind of knowledge of insider detail And actually once, you know, again, as broadcasters, you share this, once Mm -hmm. you've lost your audience, well, you know, you're not doing your job. So I, you know, I went with a kind of, well, I don't understand that. Tell me about it. Explain to me. No, I still don't understand it. Tell me again. And I really enjoyed that part of the job. And I think it it was quite a popular style, I think, I hope. Because, you know, people Mm. just sort of warmed to that sense of, oh, okay, we need to work on our storytelling here. You know, over the years, I can't pretend to say that I didn't actually... You know, perhaps take in too much detail myself, but I always tried to uh, remember, you know, the audience from that perspective. And I had a phrase that said from the sofa, so I could, you know, if I'm watching the news from the sofa and I've sat down after a busy day, you know, doing my job or cooking for my kids... I don't want to have to think, oh, God, I wish I could, you know, look up the encyclopedia of politics on that day. I want someone to tell me what the story is. And that's that's really important. And, um, you know, it turns out it was quite quite a good method.
2: I completely agree. Looking back, because you've done so many roles, what was your favourite role, do you think? Because you've done really loads of things across the BBC, which I think is great as a senior controller, because you understand how it works from the ground up, really. But what what was your favourite job, do you think?
0: Um, I think my favourite job was the job at Westminster, because it was, as I said just now, it was, you know, it was a whole new world for me. Um, And you stepped into this kind of incredible part of government. Well, it's obviously the kind of key to how governments work and learning that and really being the main person for contact for all the political parties and learning how to deal with those intense conversations working out how you're going to get through them um how you were going to reach a common aim for the bbc primarily but also understanding all the positions of all the people that you were talking to to understand how to get to you know good outcome that was tremendous and also Really, the team down at Westminster, when you're all in this kind of wonderful kind of world of of such interesting policy areas and, and internal politics of the parties, that everyone, you know, jumps out of bed, really, in the morning and just says, right, what's going to happen today? And I was lucky that I joined... <laughs> Westminster 2014 so just before the Scotland referendum and left just over a year ago and I mean wow what a time you know it was eight years of fast and fury you know I've had three elections two referendums you know the Covid uh, prime minister that nearly died etc 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 and you know it was incredibly intense period but genuinely I can say hand on heart for eight years I used to jump out of bed and think aren't I lucky? Uh, off I go. And on a Sunday night, I used to feel excited that I could go to work. And I think that's really lucky. You know, I think that's really lucky.
1: Katie, I'm sure I've heard this where you say some programs are brutal to work on. Now, as much as you jump out of bed, how do you control the, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, it's not anxiety, but how do you control that fear of, it
0: going wrong um i think perspective is really important um on those moments and you know sometimes when you're really really tired and the pressures come in and you know especially if there's been a mistake made that's always the worst you know and especially if it's your mistake you know and that's really i would struggle with that and it would really sit on you and there's so there's a couple of examples i just bring in for probably my the most intense period was when I was on the Today program, and I can't quite remember the dates, but I was i think in my late twenties, and that was the biggest and most fast kind of learning experience I had because you know I was relatively young, i you know was working with presenters like John Humphreys, who was you know incredibly well known I'd grown up watching him read the news, you know it was just extraordinary to go into that, and I was responsible for editing a program overnight in the the middle of the night when you're just at your lowest you know yeah. you're just exhausted and i used to find that really really difficult to keep going and there was always a really low point at about 4am when you just were kind of really run out of fuel and then by the time the program went on at 6am you know the adrenaline really punched in and so you you know you were ready to go and kind of collapse at night at nine o'clock and that was really intense and then the other one that comes to mind with, with that prompt you've given me is on the 10 o'clock news when I was editing the 6 and 10 o'clock news, which was, you know, I said I love Westminster and that's true, but editing the 6 and 10 o'clock news is is a really close second. It was just the most mm. extraordinary privileged job. But missing a story, as any journalist um, would know, is the worst feeling in the world. And what would happen is you put out the 10 and... Um, get to bed half eleven midnight, wake up to hear the headlines in the morning and if everyone else was reporting a story that you turned down or hadn't noticed or you know just decided not to run for whatever reason, uh, it definitely the worst feeling in the world, you know, just was awful um and of course you realize as you get older that actually just things like that happen and you know but it's a, a terrible feeling and this huge feeling of responsibility and so i mean how do you get over it you pick yourself up and go again you know uh, yeah. the next day is you're going to get the story right and you know again it when we talk about determination and um, it's definitely something that i just would feel if i had a problem it would just make me double down and think, well, I'm not going to let that happen again, and I'm going to read more, I'm going to understand more, and I'm going to really consider it, and have I done everything to make sure that that mistake doesn't happen again?
2: When you started, you said you started effectively as a secretary, and you have worked your way up to the top, really. Is that still a route that someone could follow if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I'd love to be, I'd love to be in the news, I'd love to work for the BBC? Is that still a route Or do they have to go to train to be a journalist and all the rest of it nowadays?
0: I mean, I definitely think it's a route. And I think, you know, go back to what I said earlier. I genuinely, and I really, I hope this doesn't sound too naive. And, you know, I hope I'm just not looking at it through too many rose colored spectacles. But I think that if you are willing to really put the work in, and that means not just turn up and do the hours, it means really, really do the work that's required outside those particular hours. You know, it's, it's the reading, it's the... In my terms, you know, it's, it's the reading all the news, it's listening to all the competition, watching the competition, thinking about what developments are coming in the industry, etc. And if you're going to do that, I think you can kind of do anything, you know. And I, I, I genuinely think that. I mean, look, journalism training is great. And, you know, if you want to do that, that's fantastic. And, you know, in many ways, I wish I'd done that. But I applied for loads of different courses. Um, I didn't go to university, but I did try and get on BBC schemes and other courses and I got rejected from all of them. (laughs) So, I mean, they're very hard to get on, you know, they're incredibly competitive Mm. And, and rightly so. They recruit very, very good people. I suppose what I mean by that is I just think one shouldn't just think, well, that's that then. That if you have a passion for something, you've just absolutely got to go for it and and really, really put your head down and, and just don't take no for an answer, really.
1: There's another feather in your cap here amongst many, many things that you negotiated and oversaw an interview with President Obama and you travelled with Prime Minister Theresa May to China. When you've achieved these notable moments, do you sort of pinch yourself? Do you have to go away somewhere and think gosh, did I really do that? Or do you think, actually, yes, I can do that. It's fine. But you must have to pinch yourself sometimes. Yeah, I
0: think sometimes you do. I mean, I think particularly the Westminster years, actually, and this sounds odd to say it out loud, really, like this, but you do kind of get used to it um, because every day you're often, well, not every day, but you're often in the middle of conversations with people that, you know, perhaps you'd not ever dream you'd meet, you know, or being yeah. in the prime minister's flat or when we went to China I did a trip on the Prime Minister's plane it was a a trade trip to China and um, as you know the Prime Minister would do many trips during the year and I would go on one if I could do it I'd I'd try and do one because I just thought it was it was really really good for contacts but also understanding the story etc and yeah I mean it was an an incredible privilege you know they close the roads when you land when you're in the Prime Minister's (laughs) entourage you know you then close all the roads in China and you see things that you just would never see in, in everyday life it's extraordinary and the Obama one yeah I mean that was God that was a product of several conversations and yeah I did negotiate some of it I've got to say it was a bit of a group effort but actually being in the room with him and I've I've got I was going to say I'm ashamed to say actually I'm not ashamed to say I'm proud to say I've got a picture of me and him on my mantelpiece, and. Being in the room before we did the interview with him and the Secret Service being everywhere, and him coming in and then having a chat with him afterwards was one of the greatest privileges of my life. You know, it was incredible to meet someone like that, but also just a real window on things you just see in dramas. Yeah. You know, I'm just watching The West Wing again mm. at the moment. <laughs> and, and, and it was so funny. Oh was like, God, yeah, you know, it's probably like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, oh, God, it's an extraordinary privilege. And that's why journalism is, is such a fun and incredible career, because you just get to see things that you just wouldn't do in normal life.
2: And women in journalism, I'm assuming that over the time that you spent at the BBC, there are now far more women, that's what it appears to be like anyway from the outside, far more women involved in the delivery of the news than there used to be.
0: Yes, definitely. I haven't got the figures, but I think there's been a huge growth. And it was one of the things I was proud of doing actually at Westminster was that I massively increased the number of women that we employed both on air and off air uh, in the newsroom. And that's not because... I think, the, you know, they were any better or worse than the men particularly. It's just that I think there was a tendency at Westminster to go towards men, you know, even in Parliament. When I first walked through Parliament, you just feel the presence of how male it is. I mean, even, even now, you know, very, very much so. It's just men in suits. I mean, it's obviously it's changed hugely in the number of women MPs pieces has hugely, hugely increased, unrecognisably, from from even just a short time ago. But it was a very male-dominated part of the world, and that was true also for the BBC. And I don't know, I think, look, obviously when we interview people for jobs, I think women do have a different perspective to, to men when they interview women. I just think that's just a natural part of being a woman. And I also think that my background means that I try very hard anyway to see other things in people not just qualifications and it's really important to me that you, you know you see that whole person uh, rather than just what's on the paper.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's something that I I don't know if you've watched this and we can keep this in or not, but I I have been uh, watching Ted Lasso. Do you wa- have you watched Ted Lasso Katie? Oh no, oh, I haven't actually,
0: but I've, I everyone keeps telling me I need yeah. to. It, yeah. and
1: well, well some of the things that have come out of this there's some very interesting themes and messages in in Ted Lasso. And one of them was be curious. And believe in yourself. And the curious for me is is something I think that you had even at 19, because I do not remember at 19 feeling that confident to talk on the train to Kid Jensen or Mike Brown as you're going to work and saying, oh, hi, you know, I think I would I think crawled into a corner somewhere knowing the the enormity of those two people that you were going to work with and, and their sort of credibility in the radio world, and and so for me, if I asked you now if you were talking to younger students at schools, what would you say to to younger women? I mean, I could say to younger men and women, but I'm I'm going to concentrate mm. on women. I'm proud of it. But what would you say to if you were looking at a, a, a young young woman in a classroom now?
0: What would you say to them? Um, I think it's that fear thing, isn't it? I think you know. Just get up and do it. You know, obviously you've got to be careful. And when I look back and those poor guys, I probably probably thought, oh God, here she is again. But, you know, I, I, try, I try. I mean, I was really young. So, um, you know, I try not to be too irritating. But I think also as I've got older that I've worked with a lot of well-known people. And I think without exception, people that I've worked with are continuously kind of approached by people in, you know, in public areas. And without exception, they're just actually quite flattered. Mm-hmm. And think oh was not that nice you know how nice of them to come and speak to me and I think that's you know I think that's really important and also ask ask for help I think that's the other thing is that I've again it's it's something that I've always done because it was done for me is that I think probably without exception I hope I hope I haven't turned down too many people is that I've seen pretty much everyone that's ever asked to Mm. see me and and there's a lot of people just because of my job title you know people want to come and see me and chat about work and how to get into the BBC and and I think that's giving that back is really important. Just one final question Katie your work-life balance
2: <laughs> what's that like do you manage to strike a good balance?
0: Um, yeah I mean not all the time I think again just to kind of touch back on the Westminster days which is the most relevant to that question I mean the work-life balance was there wasn't any you know in the I would really start working at 6am and I'd often not finish till midnight Mm. but I mean that you know our our days of working electronically are you know well bedded in now aren't they so I you know wouldn't be that I'd be in the office until then but I would work until very late and um, and I think I don't know I you know I sort of sometimes feel guilty about that as a mum and uh, although my boys are always very sweet and sort of say you know it's fine and they thought my job was exciting and they kind of didn't mind uh you know I've got to say I'm sure that's not true of all the times I was taking a call on a Saturday afternoon when we were out but um I suppose what I'd say in summary to that is that it's you know I've moved on from Westminster and my work-life balance has changed I probably couldn't have kept doing what I was doing for very much longer I did for eight years and working like that was incredibly intense and actually I was really addicted to it and slowing down is then difficult to come you know get used yeah. to as well yeah. but now i appreciate well i, I think i didn't realize how little work-life balance I had until I stopped doing it. So, you know, it's it's recognising that you probably want to get off the train and, and reset a little bit. It's
1: been really enlightening talking to you and I hope everybody listening today will take something out of this because it's very important to be talking to women like you, Katie. So I thank you very much from both of us that you were able to join us on Women Making Waves today. Thank you. Fantastic. It's
0: incredibly kind of you to have us. Thanks so much. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things.